Hello and welcome to the Mastermind Body and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. For the last 10 years, today's guest has been actively writing about Burning Man culture and engaging with Burning Man at the cutting edge of its philosophy, composing over 250 articles for the Burning Man website. By 2015, this work had made him, outside of Larry Harvey and his fellow founders, one of the leading interpreters of Burning Man within its own culture. In 2015, Larry Harvey asked him, along with Burning Man's Director of Education, Stuart Mangrum, to sit on the Philosophical Center of the Burning Man nonprofit. He is the author of the new book, The Scene That Became Cities, What Burning Man Philosophy Can Teach About Building Better Communities. Welcome to the show, Caveat Magister, a.k.a. Benjamin Wax. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Let's start with uh, a little bit about your background, but also where are you right now? I am actually in a corner tucked away media room at Burning Man headquarters in San Francisco. This is entirely coincidence. I planned to do your show at home and then realized I had to be running around and I thought, shoot, where am I going to find a quiet Wi-Fi enabled space that I can do this? Oh, I'll just go to Burning Man headquarters. There we go. So that's where I am right now. Unfortunately for you and your, your viewers, I'm in the most boring room at the Burning Man headquarters. This, it is a weirdly gorgeous art infested space filled with strange and whimsical things. And you're not getting any of that right now. You're, you're getting a checkered background behind me, but, um, but it is, it is a, a visually stunning and weird place to be. Uh, and, uh, yeah so sorry about that yeah no i'm i'm super happy to have you on the show i think that your book is really important i can't wait to read it i think uh, you know i've been to burning man five times and as we discussed before we started the show unfortunately i had to miss this year but for an amazing reason it was the birth of my daughter um Perfect. so you know i think the only acceptable reason and i have an amazing photo behind me this was taken this year by jacob Rig riglin i think that's how i pronounce his name i just want to give him a shout out because it looks super mm -hmm. cool um but this is burn night and uh you know burning man for people who don't go it's kind of hard, hard to understand and there's a lot of negativity and there's a lot of curiosity and there's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of stuff that goes around burning man because it's become uh worldwide now everybody kind of knows about it they've heard about it they're trying to understand it but like something like this i feel like it needs to be experienced so before i go off and and how i feel about it um why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are um how you got to where you are today and what inspired you to write your book well you 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 covered the basics um I started out volunteering for Burning Man uh, as the volunteer coordinator for their media team. And because I was talking with media volunteers and uh, on various email lists, uh, the communications department there decided that they really liked my voice when I talked about Burning Man issues and they asked me to write for their website. And this, this, wasn't, uh, this wasn't so unusual for me. I, I was a journalist uh, for a long time, a newspaper columnist, and, you know, done that sort of thing, a lot of writing. Uh, so, you know, it was certainly something that I was able to do, but I told them no. I, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, the uh, woman who managed the communications team at the time, Action Girl, uh, said, well, let's have a conversation about that. Let's sit down and have a cup of coffee Why uh, and talk about this. And I said, sure, you know, I... I love you, so let's do that. So we sat down, we had a cup of coffee. She said, okay, I'm really surprised. 
why didn't you, why don't you want to write for our website? I thought that's something you'd want to do. And I said, because no offense, but I've, I've seen what's on your website. I've seen what you're doing and it's all fine. It's all perfectly good, but it's not what I would want to do. I would want to ask really challenging questions, really open-ended questions about what the culture is, where it goes, what it does, how it works, and go in not knowing the answers and take, take whatever comes, you know, figure it out as I go instead of having a clear, you know, here's the points that I have to hit and what I have to say. And there's no organization in the world that would just let me do that on their website. So, you know, I, let's not ruin the perfectly good thing we have by, by pretending that, you know, I'm going to be able to do that. And she looks at me and she says, no, that's exactly what I want you to do. That's why I'm asking you to do this. I'm, I'm counting on you to do this. So will you, will you do it for us? And I said, I know you think that's what you want. I, I know you think that, but you don't really mean it. Okay. We'd, we'd go six weeks before somebody would say, what's he doing? You've got to take, you've got to, you can't just write that on our website. You've got to take him down. So let's again, let's not, let, let's not ruin a good relationship that we have by doing this. And she said, okay, look, here's how serious I am. I'm just going to give you publishing credentials on our website. Okay. You can just write whatever you want and publish it yourself. No editing, no review process, no pitching. You just, you just write what you need to write and publish it. And that's what'll happen. That's how serious I am. Now will you do this? And I said, well, I guess if you feel that strongly about it, if that's actually what will happen, then okay, I will, uh, I'll give this, we'll give this a try. We'll, we'll try it. I don't think it'll last six months, but we'll give it a try. So here we are about 13 years later. And, uh, that's what I have been doing ever since. And uh, they've, they've been as, as good as their word. Um, and, you know, mostly, it, uh, but, but yes, I have, I have basically been able to say whatever I want without review uh, the whole time. And the ability to do that and, and do it to people say, well, really enabled me to help understand the culture better and help the culture understand itself better. And a couple of years after that, uh, Larry Harvey, the primary founder of Burning Man, uh, reached out to me and said that he really admired my work and wanted to talk with me about it. And so we connected and we became very close friends. And he asked me to sit on the Burning Man Project's Philosophical Center. Uh, as Burning Man moved from an LLC to a nonprofit, it had the idea of a philosophical center written into its bylaws, that this would actually be an active thing that it does uh, in order to understand itself, uh, explore new areas of the culture. And so Larry, myself, and Stuart uh, became the... Uh, the Philosophical Center in 2015, and I continued doing that work uh, with them at that point. In 2016, I also became the uh, lead writer and researcher for their education program and helped write a uh, course for Burning Man on Burning Man culture and history. And then in 2018, I was offered by North Atlantic Books uh, the opportunity to write a book on Burning Man culture, on Burning Man philosophy. They said, you know, we really admire your work. We think this, this time has come. Would this be good? Will you do this? And they offered it to me just as Larry had his stroke, which he had in 2018. And so I 
basically started writing the book uh, a couple of weeks after he died, which was something that I had never imagined I would have to do, the idea of writing something like this without him, you know, sort of looking over my shoulder and talking about it with him and it being that collaborative process had never even occurred to me. Uh, but so I spent most of 2018 writing the book and uh, then when it was finished, I'll be perfectly honest, I was one step ahead of a breakdown. So I quit everything and uh, went and traveled some and I'm uh, coming back from that now that the, the book is published and out. But uh, that, that's sort of the history of it and, uh, and where I came from with this. Amazing, man. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Yeah. And unfortunately, Larry Harvey passed sometime last year, right? Like last year was when everybody was celebrating his life and there's all yeah. the, uh, all the things up there for a very uh, interesting human. Uh, I learned a lot more about him as all these articles were coming up. So maybe you can speak on that a little bit if you wish, because it looks like you wanted to jump in. You, you would know him personally. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit. Uh, Larry was a fascinating, brilliant, and sometimes very difficult uh, person. Um, I like to say that it took a profoundly alienated man to create a community like this. Uh, he was he was adopted. He was an orphan. Uh, he he grew up uh, with a close family, but also with a sense of, of deep isolation and in many ways, much of his life's work became bringing people together in new forms of community, creating better ways for us to relate to one another. Um, and I mean, Larry would often joke, we certainly talk about this with each other, that you know, if, if Burning Man weren't radically inclusive, neither of us would have ever been invited to go. Um, he, you know, he, <laughs> he said I had to, I had to create this in order to get invited. And I had a, a, a similar story. Um, he was, he was, he was, he was not a he was not a hipster. He was not a member of an avant-garde art movement. Um, he uh, he was he was a, a, a land he was a, a, a landscaper. Um, he you know spent a lot of time um, you know working on people's yards. He was uh, he, he briefly served in the military. Uh, he he belonged to a group of people in in San Francisco in the in the 80s who we call the latte carpenters because they were they were blue collar guys who would sit around and also talk about philosophy um over over coffee and that's the milieu out of which he came and he didn't really have a formal education he was an autodidact he he read everything himself but he was also one of those brilliant men i've i've ever met and incredibly playful his his sense of humor is one of the things that is most often lost in in discussions about larry uh he was he did not see himself as any kind of spiritual leader. He saw himself as a guy who had an idea and who was good at creating the conditions under which communities can flourish. And, and that's what it was. I appreciate you sharing that. And maybe you can go into a little bit of uh, Burning Man history, just a very quick one, because I know uh, some people listening to this are very familiar with Burning Man. Some people have no idea what it is. So maybe you can give like a little bit of, you know, just an overview where it came from and like kind of what it is today. Well, I mean, the, the basics are that uh, Larry and his friend Jerry James, so Larry and Jerry and their families uh, got the idea to uh, build a life-size wooden man on Baker Beach in San Francisco and burn it. And uh, Larry had the idea. Jerry was a carpenter. And so, you know, he, he actually did most of the, the making of the thing. They, they, used, uh, they used a lot of found wood for it. Uh, the guy was eight feet tall. Um, the story is that he also had a little dog that the kids made. So there was actually a burning dog. Um, 
on the first one. And uh, it was kind of a couple, a couple of families having a sort of a, an art picnic on the beach was, was what it started out as. But when they lit it on fire, it was incandescent and a crowd of 30 some people just all came together. Suddenly they just, they just came over on the beach and there was this realization that something had happened that this act of creating a piece of art and offering it up to anyone who was there, you know, no, no charge, no, uh, no admission fee, um, no velvet rope, but, and then lighting it on fire and just being present in that moment had, had had an impact on people had, had created a momentary community of strangers. And so they decided to do it again and it got bigger and they decided to do it again and it got bigger. And at that point, um, it came to the attention of a legendary group of San Francisco pranksters. I think you could maybe call them art pranksters, although I don't know that they ever thought of themselves as artists, but called the Cacophony Society. And these were people who really enjoyed doing, again, I think public, public art pranks is the best way to, to think of them. Um, there's a race in San Francisco called Bay to Breakers in which uh, people go from the San Francisco Bay and they race all the way to the, uh, to the ocean. Um, and the Cacophony Society, one of the things they did was they would dress in salmon costumes and they would run up, upstream against the race. Uh, thing, <laughs> things like that. They started, they started SantaCon. They started around Christmas all dressing up as, as Santas and going from, from bar to bar. Um, they, uh, they, 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 did, they did these kinds of things and uh, they saw what was going on with Larry and Jerry on Baker Beach and they offered to help and it continued to grow. And then uh, the, when I think in 1990, when the San Francisco authorities finally said, yeah, you can't do that, you don't have permits, you have to shut it down. Uh, they went and they took it to the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. And it was a Cacophony Society event then that was happening in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. And they, they built the man there and they burned it. And everybody just realized when they did this, this is, this is amazing. This, this combination of elements, this, this art project in this, this blank open space uh, is, is something incredibly special, incredibly difficult, but incredibly special. And it just started to grow and grow and grow from there until, uh, it was more or less doubling in size every year at that point. And suddenly by, you know, 1996, you had 10,000, 15,000 people and people were going, who, who are all these people? Where do they come from? And at that point it needed some more organization. And so a, an organization was made to, you know, provide infrastructure and work with, work with the, the authorities because at that point it was again coming to the attention of, of authorities. And, uh, and they started, it turned into, uh, it turned into what it was, which was the creation of a city. It was not a city when people went out there, Black Rock City, but they kept on adding more and more amenities and somebody got the idea of doing a post office and somebody wanted to create a newspaper. And of course there were, there were lots of bars. And so suddenly, suddenly an informal city was being created. And then out of that joke, a formal city emerged and suddenly it was a real thing. And it just kept on happening and happening. And eventually it became a nonprofit in 2013. And, uh, and here it is today. That's amazing. Well, yeah, it is a it is a real city. It's funny because my first year, the, how I got there is a very long story. I'm going to skip it. But the long and short of it is I had a week to prepare and I knew how much of a pain in the butt was and I had an amazing camp. Uh, shout out Genital Portrait Studios for my first one. I was like, oh my goodness, guys, what an idea. Um, but it was like a shocker. But 
um, to get in, I, I couldn't figure out how to get in. And, and uh, I actually take, ended up taking a small plane from Canada, a very small one, and, and flew in. And there's an official oh, wow. airport yeah. that, that is built there. And I was coming in from the sky. I was and seeing the line of cars. You're, you know, you're never going to forget your first year. It's, it's, it's just something like that needs to be experienced. It's so mind-blowing. I don't think I shut up about it for probably four months. Uh, totally necessary to have the um, decompression parties and the amazing people and connections and, and things and, and the beautiful experiences that you have there are really, really incredible. So um, I don't want to get sidetracked on my own excitement about Burning Man just yet. But can you talk a little bit about um, your book? You're talking about the philosophy of community. And that for me is such a big element of what Burning Man is to me. You know, when people mm -hmm. see it, they, they talk about a lot of the negative things. And there are some negative things. It's true. There's a lot of stuff that's not perfect. There's a huge 70,000 people. Some people come for different reasons that might not be in alignment with the 10 principles, but there are guidelines. There are amazing things in place. There are opportunities to make uh, lifelong connections, lifelong friends, and absolutely incredible conversations and open-heartedness. There's so much beauty that I experience every year. Maybe it's because it's my intention and my hope and where I go, um, but it can be anything that you want it to be really at the end of the day. So can you speak a little bit about your book and some of the philosophy and some of the things that you think Burning Man can offer the world? Yeah, all right. Burning Man philosophy. Let's talk about that. Um, the, the fact that Burning Man has a fairly developed philosophy is, is one of the many things that separates it out from, say, music festivals or, or events like that. But a lot of people hear philosophy and they get, they get the wrong idea. They, they think of it as being some sort of blueprint for how you create something like this. And that isn't it at all. Let's, let's, before we talk about what it is, let's talk about where it comes from. So, okay, Burning Man did not start because somebody had a philosophy and they were trying to make the, bring the philosophy to life, right? It was a family picnic. It was two guys, one of whom had the idea, hey, let's build a wooden man on the beach and burn it. That wasn't a philosophical statement, right? There wasn't a plan there. There wasn't some you know, complicated document that they were following. They just wanted to have an experience. And that's one of the things you have to realize about Burning Man, which is that the experience always comes first. As I, as I say in the book, and we'll, we'll get to the book, but as I, as I say there a lot, the fundamental unit of meaning at Burning Man isn't abstract thought or language or reasoning. It's what you do. It's action. So Burning Man started with action. It started with two guys creating art in a public space and letting anybody come. That's, that's what it started with. And the, most, the question that Larry was probably asked most in his life was, what does it mean? What did it mean? What, did, you know, what does it symbolize? And he never answered that. Occasionally he did, but he'd give contradictory answers. He, he never came up with a, this is what it means. This is what it's supposed to mean. This is what you're supposed to think about when you're doing it. Again, that was never part of it. That was never part of what happened. Um, you, you don't have a received meaning that you have to say, this is what this is. This is how I should experience it. Again, the experience comes first. The action comes first. So for the first many years of Burning Man, that was all there was. It was a thing they did. There wasn't an explanation. There wasn't a doctrine. There wasn't a philosophy. There wasn't anything like that. And it just emerged organically, right? It wasn't, again, that somebody said, oh, we're in the desert now. We should, we should create a city because that is, that is a rational thing to do. It just happened. People just started to do it. And once it's, they saw that it was doing it, people started to go, oh, I want to do that too. And they all started to play at that. 
it wasn't until 2004 that Burning Man took its first major step into what we could now consider Burning Man philosophy, right? So that's 1986 to 2004, and there's no particular philosophy happening. Or what's happening is experienced, it's lived. It's not a philosophy that you read about, it's a philosophy you live. That's, that's growing organically. The people doing it are the people making it. 2004, something changed. What changed? Okay, well, by 1997, 98, definitely by 99, Burning Man started to develop what's called the regional network, now the global network, where people were coming in from all across the country and even the world, and some of them were leaving going, I want to do this at home. I want to do some version of this at home. And in fact, uh, in 97, 98, the first regional took place outside of, I believe, Austin, Texas, um, when somebody did it, you know, just, just to do it. We're having a Burning Man event. We're doing it ourselves. We're doing it locally. And, and why couldn't they do that, right? Of course they could do it. It's, it's not like there's anything proprietary about building a effigy and burning it while you're all camping, right? I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, there's no reason not to. The, the, the Burning Man organization said, sure, that'd be great. Um, so, and then this started to pop up. This started to happen. And by 2004, you had regional groups, relatively small, but still real, across the United States and in some parts of Europe. And then they went to the Burning Man organization in 2004 and said, um, we're having a really hard time explaining what we're doing to people in our communities, right? We're, we're really having a hard time talking about this because it is a thing you have to experience to get, but we need to talk to people about this, right? We need to be able to tell people where we live, why we're doing this and what it's supposed to be about and how it works. Can you help us with that, please? Can you, can you help us figure this out? What do we say? And that's where things got really interesting because think about this. You have what is right now an LLC with a movement that has been described as the new American holiday, an event that has been described as the new American holiday, Wired Magazine described it as that way back in 1996. And their network of global volunteers is asking them, hey, can you explain what we're doing? Most people at that point, most organizations would publish a book or they would, they'd have Larry give a big speech and then they'd refer people to the speech or they'd publish a white paper, right? They do something like that. That is not what happened. Instead, what happened was that Larry wrote out 10 principles to explain what Burning Man was. And they're under 500 words, all told. They're mass, it's, it's, it's amazingly concise. And they're not prescriptive, they're descriptive. They don't say you should do this, they say this is what we value. And where do they come from? Where do these 10 principles come from? It wasn't, again, it wasn't a blueprint. It wasn't Larry going, well, this is how I think it should work. This is what I think is good in the world. This is what I want to encourage. It was Larry saying, when I look at our community, what are we actually doing? When this thing works, when it has the impact it has that we want it to have, what's going on? So he took what the culture had built organically and described it. He didn't say, this is what you had to do. He said, this is what we did to get here, and this is how it works now that we're here. And so you have 10 principles. And that's what he sent to the regional network, and that's what was published. And the 10 principles, let's see if I can remember them all, are um, radical inclusion, radical self-expression, radical self-reliance, decommodification, gifting, participation, 
communal efforts, civic responsibility, leaving no trace, and immediacy. Ten principles. Right. When you, it, you, you, we, we, we laugh, but actually the truth is that most burners cannot name all ten. In fact, if you were to go to people in this building, in Burning Man headquarters, and do a flash quiz and say, all right, what are the ten principles? A lot of people would, would get maybe six or seven. <laughs> yeah, it's impressive. I had the website up just because I knew we were going to talk about it. So I was scrolling through as you're saying, I was like, nice work. You were prepared. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> but, um, but so those are the 10 principles. And again, those aren't prescriptions. Those aren't, this is what you have to do. And nowhere in there is a, this is how you leave no trace, or this is how you express yourself. It's a statement that these are the things we value. This is what we do. And when we do it, Burning Man happens. So suddenly you have this advancement. Suddenly you have the 10 principles. And that's where Burning Man philosophy as a written thing, as an idea, as an abstract notion starts to emerge. But that's also pretty much where they left it. Much in the same way that Larry didn't say, this is what the man means, I burn it, and it symbolizes this. He left that, he left that open. He left that for you to figure out. You, you decide. The action is the important thing. The same thing, they didn't then go and do a whole big 10 principles thing or expand on it or, you know, they just, they just left it. They kept it. it. It's literally the minimum he could do to be helpful while saying as little as possible. That, that's pretty much it. And it worked. Amazingly, considering how contentious burners can be about things, people pretty much looked at it and went, oh yeah, that, that seems to work and accepted it. And so the culture continued to grow and the event continued to grow and the regional network became the global, the global network and it continued to grow. And then you reached a point around 2013, 2014, where what had been, so Burning Man started out as an experiment, right? It started out as a couple guys and their families going, I wonder if we could build a man on the beach and burn him. And, oh, it looks like we can, let's try it again. And then, you know, again. So it started out as an experiment. Then they moved to the desert and it became a frontier. It was quite literally the Wild West. It was quite literally a frontier town for all these years. But it became a city and it kept going. And then it had a, a regional network and a global network. And that's where it became a culture. It had this very organic growth from an experiment to a frontier to a culture. And it kept growing. And now it's in what I call its high culture phase, where it's this global emergent culture. And that has, those things have different needs, right? The needs and opportunities of an experiment are different from the needs and opportunities of a frontier. And the needs and opportunities of a culture are different from the needs and opportunities of a frontier. Now you've reached this point where Burning Man is a global phenomenon, it's a global culture, and much in the same way that the 10 principles emerged out of people saying, we need to talk about this, how can we do it? We're at this point where people are talking about it so much and so many people are being introduced to the culture through these discussions and these dialogues. This used to be a culture where people accessed it by being part of it, right? You went and that's how you learned what it was. Now, a whole lot more people think they know what it is because they're reading something about it. They're part of a discussion that has nothing to do with it. So the time had come, I felt, and, and Larry agreed, that we needed to do more. That's why Larry started the Philosophical Center. And that's where the book comes from because it's not that Burning Man philosophy is a blueprint. It's not that it's going to tell you, here's what you have to do. Here's how you organize something. Here's what you, you know, here, here's the right and true thing that you should be part of. But what it does do is it says, let's look at what's actually going on. 
Let's describe this as accurately as possible and make it as accessible as possible and see what inspires us. That's what Burning Man philosophy is for. That's, that's what it does. Not to give you the right answers, but to be helpful in your pursuit of your own personal passion and engagement. That's what Burning Man philosophy is for. And the time had come, we felt, to, to write a book because the community is so much bigger now. It's a global phenomenon. It, uh, we're, it, people are going to talk about it anyway, so we might as well help them talk about it as well as we possibly can. But it's still, action is still the basic unit of meaning. That's amazing. Just listening to all that is giving me so much more uh, background and clarity. And I love the way that you are phrasing that, that the action is the basic unit and, and immediacy and going through the, all, the principles and how you're sharing that. It's not a blueprint. This isn't a must. These are just things that we are observing from what is happening. You know, it's right. almost out of, out of control from the beginning, watching the people, watching the community go, engage in an experience and, and observe what is working and what is creating that experience and what is creating um, positive impact and all these relationships and these beautiful experiences and, and, and growing, growing like that and leaving as much room to your own interpretations as possible. Because what he could have done, like you were saying there, I just imagined like at that point, it could have been a huge turning point for Burning Man where he comes up and, you know, he gets mm -hmm. maybe full of ego and he's like, oh, I've created this and now here's my philosophy, right? You start a you know, a whole religion out of it. It could be yeah. whatever you'd want to call it. And that's, then you start steering the boat, but it seemed like you, you phrased it perfectly, just the minimum dose of this is all the direction you need. Keep going, let it continue to emerge, let it flower naturally, let it just uh, be experienced. And I totally agree that Burning Man is something that needs to experience because as accurately as I can portray it or as much enthusiasm or whatever, you just can't get it. You just got to go. Even people, I remember like my third year, people who had lived in San Francisco and heard about it over and over and over again and they're there on wednesday we're on an art car and they're just like i've heard about this but oh my god like what is happening and yeah. i also like what you said at the beginning where you said that um you know you and larry may not have been invited to create something that you just got invited to and i think that's a really beautiful part too because i've met so many amazing people there young, old, all different walks of life, all uh, different experiences in the, in the world, retired, all these different things. Yeah. And it kind of like, um, it takes those boundaries away. That's one of the things I really like is that there's, there's no, like w when you're going around your normal neighborhood and you're going to your local bars and you're having your local experiences, you have the same experiences, you have the same conversations mm -hmm. and your guard is up. But when you go to a place where you, like there's nothing is grounded you know, everything is so fresh and it's so fresh for that next person. So you don't go in and you don't like connect on any kind of preconceived notion. You're experiencing something that you're both processing together and it connects you and it's wonderful and it, it's not so important where yeah. they came from, what they do for work. And then the higher quality conversations and connections immediately happen just because of that, of that experience and that openness you're not worried and you're not guarded so um the way that it's crafted is beautiful yeah no i i i tell people you know people ask me why do you keep going back to burning man and one of the things i say is that it's because in my life as in most of our lives we pretty much know what's going to happen day to day week to week month to month right i mean we never we never know exactly we have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen burning man events burning man spaces black rock city this is a place where I don't know what's going to happen when I cross the street. 
I have no idea. It could be anything. It's amazing. And, <laughs> and that, that creates so, so much opportunity. And, and like you said, it's not, yeah, it's not at all about doing what we tell you to do or we want you to do. It's about figuring out what you want to do. One of the things that I, I talk about in the book is, is what I call applied existentialism, right? It's, and it's this notion that, and, and you probably had this experience, I've had this experience, I think pretty much everybody has this experience when they first go out there. You're in a place where your money is basically no good here where there is no winning, there is no rat race, there's no way to keep score or status in the way that we usually do it. You've got this week of time where you can't do the things that you normally do just to get ahead in life. And so you suddenly have to ask yourself, what do I actually wanna do? And it could be anything, because there really aren't limits there. You want to start a newspaper? Sure. You, you want to run a, a naked marathon? Sure. You, uh, you, know, you, you want to you cook, cook bacon and potato pancakes and, and make a cart and roll it around? You want to you start a, a hall of mirrors? I mean, what, what do you want to do? It could be anything. What do you actually care about doing for its own sake? And that question kind of freaks people out for a while. You really have to confront this question. What do I actually care about? What do I want to do? But when you find that, once you find that, suddenly that doesn't just change your experience, that changes your life. That's, that's profound, but it's not from doing what we want you to do. It's from us helping you do what you want to do. And it's completely different. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, the way that the mind works really just basic psychology is that when we're stuck in one pattern, it's really hard to imagine mm -hmm. anything else. And so yeah. what it does nicely for you is just break all of those patterns and everything that you can think of and anything that you put in a tiny box, because yeah. that box is always changing every second. So your brain is like, okay, never mind. You like, you can't mm -hmm. label anything like the way we process things we're just labeling things as we go around so we understand them and you know mm -hmm. you'll see like a banana riding a bike and then you'll see you know what i mean <laughs> something else ridiculous and as you try to label all these different things it just becomes absurd very quickly and so you allow yourself to emerge in the experience and people start talking about things that are more important to them you know they start to mm -hmm. talk about a little bit more upbeat things what is it that you want and and understanding yeah. that if you can create it here all that effort i was oh i was so shocked at like the amount of effort that went in oh for God, one yeah. week i was like yeah. what you know why would you do that and i feel like you know, it, it also is a testament to what is possible when people work together, whether it's a small camp and you've gone for your first year and you just manage getting there and you survive, mm -hmm. you know, or you, you've been there for a few years and you're offering really amazing gifts for people. And, you know, I've seen so many people at different camps just s offer so much, work so hard all year. And then when they're there, they're working the whole time because yeah. you're creating a container for somebody to have an experience that's going to help them grow as an individual far beyond um, maybe what therapy would do for years or something else because the the environment is doing that for them. The people yeah. and everything it engages is, is is doing that for them. Yeah, no, it's 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 amazing. And it is it is very psychologically powerful. I mean, people people talk about transformative experiences all the time to the point where it's it's a cliche. And I actually there's an element of this I don't like because I think that the more we talk about transformative experiences and the transformative experiences people have out there, the more it becomes assumed that if you don't have a transformative experience, something's gone wrong, that this is, this is a thing you do and you, you have it and you go and you're transformed and oh, and it's not like that at all. Um, but in, in, and I, I, really, I really don't like the notion that we're sort of promising people transformative experiences, both because I don't think 
that's helpful and because I think it takes the onus off of people to do the work themselves, right? It's not like you go and somebody sprinkles fairy dust on you when you're transformed. You're going to have, I, I tell people really accurately, and this is actually something that I talk about in the book a lot, that, you know, you get depressed at Burning Man. This is not a, this is not a safe space. This is, I, I say Burning Man is not a safe space. We take your risks and we lubricate them. Uh, <laughs> We make it easy for you to take risks and easy for you to recover from them, but they are risks. It's real. This is a, not a benign environment. The things that happen there have consequences. You can fail. You can fail badly. Um, it says on the ticket, you assume the risk of death. You may very well die. The ticket never says, and you'll have a great time. Uh, this, 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 this is important. But So it's, it's not like something automatically happens. You will have these experiences and you have to do the work. And I am guaranteed at least two major existential crises for every week I'm at Burning Man. That's a, that's a given. That's just a, that's just a thing that happens. No matter how many years I go, I'm still going to have them. Uh, th this year, I had a bunch this year. It was, like, it was an amazing experience, but oh yeah, no, I, so many people out there get lonely and, and, and depressed and, and miserable. I mean, I think the most useful thing I ever wrote about Burning Man is called, it's okay to be miserable at Burning Man. Um, but it does have a transformative effect on people. This is a real thing that happens. It is so psychologically potent. And it's, it's this amazing combination of art and play and ritual all happening in, in this space where you are encouraged, not only, where not only are you encouraged to pursue your intrinsic passion, right? Applied existentialism, what do you really want to do? But everyone around you is doing that same thing. And it turns out that when people are all pursuing their, in, their real passions, their, their intrinsic passions, environments get really potent and powerful and interesting and amazing things happen. And it has a deep effect. It, it affects us all very deeply. That is, a, that is a, a real and profound thing. And it is very hard to explain outside of that, but, but it happens. It, it's not an automatic, happy, transformative experience, but it's real. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And I'm glad you you shared that because one of the fascinating things I discovered at one of my Burning Man's is I was sitting there in my tent and I was like, "How is it that I have never felt this lonely before?" I had a great camp, mm -hmm. I had great f friends, and mm -hmm. I'm just like, "How am I feeling this like this like this this epic loneliness right now?" Yeah. And it really takes you through the gauntlet. And a lot of people go there; they have really terrible experiences, and yeah. um, that happens to a great degree and many of the people who have those experiences it actually ends up helping them in, yeah. a, in, in a way in some way they they get an insight you know whatever happens whatever that experience gave them they you know some people will say you know burning man doesn't give you what you want it gives you what you need and you hear mm -hmm. all these sayings when you're there and all these different experiences um and things like playa magic you know i'm i 100 percent agree that that's a thing and i was trying to figure out why that happens because everybody has an experience with that and and for people who don't know it's just a synchronicity that is only yeah. for you and it and it just happens way too many times it's it's way too random to just be chance but it's happening over and over so what is happening there and i i interviewed uh roger nelson and uh dean Raiden, who was actually doing the uh the tests uh, with the random the random number generators or, or the balls to see if there was a group mm -hmm. coherence at Burning Man. And that's where I'm really interested in, like, is there a group connection? Is there a consciousness that is, like, at play? Can people, you know, what happens when so many people can be singular-minded or focused on one ideal? Now, not everybody is probably on the same page, but those guidelines do connect us in a way where it's more 
often than not, you're going to be some, you're going to be connecting with somebody who is a, is a part of those guidelines and that makes it a safer space. And that makes it more open. That makes human beings be able to connect at a deeper level because out in the world, it's a scary place. You know, go ahead. This is, this is one of the really important things about Burning Man and about what it has to teach us about culture and communities. Um, this, this really is sort of the thesis of the book. I mean, I, I, this, this is the book, by the way, The Scene That Became Cities. And like I say, its subtitle is um, What Burning Man Philosophy Can Teach Us About Building Better Communities. And in a nutshell, what we see happening is this, that we think that there is a conflict between individuals pursuing their passions and the need of society, right? We, we assume that those two things are in conflict. And, and, and in times of scarcity and, you know, where, where everyone is, is constantly fighting famine, maybe that's true. But we live in a world of superabundance, right? And in a world like that, it turns out that when people pursue, discover and pursue their intrinsic motivations, their, their deep passions, it doesn't separate them from the larger community, it connects them to it. If that community is receptive, if that community is helpful, it connects them to it. Because here's the thing, when we are acting on the basis of extrinsic motivations, when you're doing something for a paycheck, when you're doing something because you're forced to, because you need to do it to live, you act, it's actually alienating. It, it pushes you away from other people and from, from, from larger connection because what you are practicing are the skills of doing something because you have to and nothing more. But when you are pursuing your passion, when you are pursuing your intrinsic motivation, when you are doing what you love, you are learning to care. You are learning to connect and to engage with something larger than yourself. And the skills that that produces in you, the habits of mind, then help you connect with others who are doing the same thing. And eventually you start to support each other because it turns out, it turns out that when we can do whatever we want, when we have this opportunity for applied existentialism and we can do whatever we want, eventually what we want to do is build communities. Eventually what we want to do is connect with other people. And the more you practice doing what matters to you, the better you are able to do that. It turns out that doing what you love is practice for loving. And that's what we learned. Yeah, that's... That's beautiful. Super well put. And what it made me think about is just the idea from, you know, living in the world from, from competition to collaboration. And Burning Man is so much about collaboration. And one of the thought experiments I share in the podcast a lot of time is the idea of what it would be like for Team Earth. If you had a UFO up and the aliens are looking down and they're looking at the human race, it's just like, oh my goodness, this is chaotic. And if they had like the Olympics out in the universe of all these different races and looking at different uh, civilizations and how they connect, well, we're not working together. We're not even at a D. We're still, we're still killing each other. We're letting people starve to death. We, are, we have a lot of issues here. And what is required yeah. is some understanding. What is required is a little bit more collaboration. What is uh, required is a little bit more tolerance, a little bit more kindness, a little bit more action. And Burning mm-hmm. Man is embodying those principles. So when you're there, you meet somebody from you know Europe, China, Asia, Canada, whatever, all different walks of life. And none of that is really relevant other than your curiosity about their way of life. Right. You know, and, 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 and all these camps mixing together and you want to collaborate more. You want to help more. You want to bring this out into your communities and, and feel that. And people 
uh, have, you know, a real tough time with, with decompression, you know, and, and uh, is that what it's called? I forget now, man, one yeah. year out of, yeah. yeah. And you're just depressed because you're in just this loving open environment, you know, for the most part, there's some stuff, um, but you're in this welcoming community and now you're a little bit alienated. And you don't have like, you know, one spot or two spots or three spots to go, go to and you feel sad, real sad. And so how can we bring some of these principles of global collaboration and cooperation uh, on one scale and then also communal because we're mm -hmm. having to do that anyway. You know, living in Canada, we're one of the most multicultural uh, countries in the world, you know, Toronto especially, and we're learning to do that. We're, we're melting all these different cultures together without killing each other. Again, for the most part, we're doing pretty good. It's not a hundred percent, but we need to do that on a bigger scale and, and, and take down these invisible borders and these nationalities and all these different things. And the people, it just shows you that people don't want this generally. You know, it's, it's something else. Like people want to collaborate. They want to be kind. They want to know about the other person. They want to build together. And it's a beautiful example of that in real life. Yeah. No, I, I like to say Burning Man is a prototype. It's, you know, it's only, it's only for a, a week, a year. Um, but then again, there are also, you know, regional events happening all over the world. You know, there, there are, uh, we're, we're, we're in countries around the globe. And so it's, it's replicable. It happens. But, it, you know, it's, it's a short period. So it's a prototype. But it's, it is a prototype. It's a demonstration that other ways of connecting, other ways of organizing society actually are possible and feasible and replicable. And that's important. There's still a lot of work to be done. It's not, you know, it's not a perfect system. It's certainly not a blueprint. Again, everything I've, I've said is this is not a blueprint. This is not a, oh, if you just follow these steps and this will work out. No, you don't, you know, you creating that kind of society is about not following those steps. It's about people figuring, the people really there figuring out what is important to them and finding ways to support one another in doing it. And that doesn't lend itself to a top-down blueprint. You know, it's not like we have a, a formula for a utopian society. I think Burning Man is actually anti-utopian in a sense. We're not promising that things will be perfect, just that they can be better. We can do better than this. But you're absolutely right. People, people who have this experience want this experience in their life. It turns out that when you are in an environment surrounded by people who are supportive of whatever your unique and idiosyncratic passion is, that makes a difference. That changes you. And, and you want more of that. No, we, we've demonstrated that. We've proven that. Yeah. And a lot of these things are really basic principles because if you, again, you just think about a person's day-to-day -day life and, and maybe what they really want to do, what their real passion is, right? What do you want? And, and me at Burning Man, a lot of those conversations are just getting to know people and just figuring out who are you? What is it that you want to do? What are you doing in the outside world? Are you happy? What would you like to do in the outside world? How would you shift things? And just asking those questions, it was surprising to me how few people actually ever even ask themselves that question. What do I want to do with my life? This is yeah. my experience. You know what I mean? And you have the power. You are capable. It might not be an easy road. You might fail. You're probably going to fail. But it doesn't mean that you cannot succeed eventually. You will succeed. And most people don't have a surrounding network of people that are actually encouraging them. We live mostly with a little bit of a crab in the bucket syndrome. People want to keep you safe. So if you go outside the box and you pursue what you're passionate about, you could fail and then, you know, and then the world comes down or maybe they don't want you to succeed, whatever the case may be. But mm -hmm. just being around people that want to hear you, 
that are actually listening and then yeah. are giving you feedback on the idea and supporting you. And if we could cultivate that within our communities, that would be super beautiful. And, and it's great that people out there that are friends and family members and, and doing things in the real world to support people with those initiatives. That's, that's a really beautiful thing. It's a very empowering thing. And it's yeah. not a common thing that we get in the day-to-day world. So I, I wanted to ask it, you know, can you share uh, some of your other ideas or principles or, observations of what do you think Burning Man can offer communities or countries, you know, whether it's at a small level for an individual to apply or at at bigger levels or national levels, what have you observed that can help? Right. Well, I think, like I said, the the first thing and the most important thing is the dynamic that I was pointing out earlier, that we often think that the, the individuals pursuing their intrinsic passions is contrary to the needs of the social order. And the first thing to realize is that this is not the case, that the more people are motivated by intrinsic motivation, by genuine passion, to, the more they are given the opportunity to do what they love, the more connected they tend to be to the broader society. So that's, that's the first thing that I think people, that Burning Man has to offer. That's, that is the most important thing, the realization that, no, 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 these two things go together that people following their intrinsic passions, their innate motivations actually strengthens the whole. And if the whole then goes back and supports them, then you have a virtuous cycle. So that's, that's the first thing. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing is that we need to give up. And, and one of the things that is implied by that is that we need to give up a level of control over what people are doing, that we have to actually let them make meaningful choices. And, and, and make sure that they are, they are offered that. Um, because when you have a system in which people have limited ability to make choices, their intrinsic motivation is tamped down. So we need to give people more opportunities to, to follow and pursue that. And this then comes to something that's really difficult. Everything I've just said, people can be like, oh, sure, okay, you know, that makes sense. This then implies something that is a lot harder for people to swallow, which is that fairly often we need to take efficiency off the table. What do I mean by that? Well, we live in a world that is hyper-obsessed with efficiency, right? I mean, all the, all the tech companies are there to, you know, create minuscule improvements in in day-to-day life that makes it frictionless and seamless and creates slight improvements and efficiencies. Our offices, our workplaces are obsessed with efficiency. Are you, you know, the idea that, you know, having a little breathing room is stealing time from the company. I mean, we're, we're obsessed with efficiency across every metric. That is a mindset in which people cannot pursue their individual passions. On the contrary, an efficiency mindset is one that is basically telling you submit. Even when you're the, on the receiving end of it, it is streamlining your experience in a way that takes the possibility out. Remember what I was talking about before about how at Black Rock City in a Burning Man environment, I don't know what's going to happen next when I cross the street and it's amazing. Efficiency mindsets take that possibility away. And it turns out that that does a tremendous amount of damage. And people will respond, oh, well, efficiency is so important. Otherwise, you know, you have all these, these bad processes and these inefficient things. But has that actually been the way it's gone? Our world is so much more efficient now, but are we in fact happier with it? Are we in fact more pleased with the results that we get? One of the things that I think Burning Man proves as a demonstration of an alternative means of doing things, I call it efficiency third, 
Uh, there's a there's a there's an old saying that Burning Man is a safety third environment. I think Burning Man is very much an efficiency third environment as well. Uh, is that when you get a bunch of people who are really getting together because they're passionate about doing something and they're more concerned with how it results than with making it efficient, your results are often just as good or better than you are than they are when you're pursuing an efficiency mindset. And this is something I talk a lot about in the book. There's a lot more demonstration of this there. But it turns out that when you pursue efficiency for its own sake and don't balance it out with other values, things tend to get worse, not better. And people who genuinely care and are pursuing their passions together actually create better results much of the time than you do with an efficiency first plan. That doesn't mean there's no place for efficiency, but it means that the people who are actually doing the work and care about the results should be the ones deciding when to make processes more efficient and when not. Uh, so that's, that's something else to learn is that an, an efficiency third mindset will often be better for everyone than an efficiency first mindset. Um, so that's, that's another uh, thing. And I guess, I guess the final thing that I'll, I'll mention uh, is the concept of duocracy. And this is, this is basic to, to Burning Man. It was actually a, a cacophony society thing as well. Um, the idea that the people making the decisions should be the people doing the work. And that is so removed from what is mostly happening right now in, in our society and in our organizational structures. Um, decisions are made by people who are really removed from the work itself that is being done. And it turns out that that is not only deeply alienating to you know, a whole bunch of people, but it creates all kinds of problems because of course the people making the decisions are as far away as they can possibly be from the actual work getting done. So there's, there's, there's an information problem there as, as well. Um, now, duocracy, the people who are doing the work get to make the decisions about it is, is a really useful model for, uh, for ways in which we can make communities better. And there's, there's some other stuff. I have a leadership model in the book uh, that I think is really, really useful for these kinds of things. But those, those things, I think, are the, the sort of the top-level points of, okay, if we want to know what Burning Man has to offer uh, communities and culture, that's a, that's a really great place to start. That's amazing. I really enjoyed all those points, and I think they're really powerful. I didn't expect the uh, efficient one, I, but the way that you phrase it, it seems – to make sense. And it seems like, you know, we are really in a society that is, you know, efficient, we need to be efficient in some way, but it does impede other aspects. And I, I really like the idea of the intrinsic motivation. That's funny, because you're putting it in a much more intelligent way that I put it, but I use the analogy. It's like when you're connecting to, let's say people are looking for their life purpose or meaning or what do I want to do? And I just use the analogy of just being a beaver. You know, if you were made a beaver, and you are trying to be a duck or a squirrel, or uh, a deer, you're going you're gonna to be a terrible deer, mm -hmm. and you're not going to enjoy your life. And that's kind of like how we're, we're doing it these days, we, we need to figure out money so we can survive. So we're doing right. these tasks, we're showing up and doing tasks for money, so that we can be indoors. Um, but mm -hmm. that's not fulfilling. That's not us being ourselves. But when we connect to who we are, no matter how unique, no matter how peculiar, no matter what that is, and we do that to the best of our abilities, then we become, you know, as a part of the environment, the beaver is doing its thing, you know, nobody knows why it wants to chop down the tree and do that. But it loves doing that. And it's fulfilled and it's happy. And when it does that, it supports the entire forest by being itself. And I think, like the way that we experience life, that it does help the whole because we as individuals are inspired, we're happy. And most importantly, it's your life. It's your 
uh, opportunity. And, and one of the things that I've learned from traveling and from doing so many podcasts and, and training with all of these different masters from Shaolin monks to, you know, training with a Native American elder to talking to people who are successful in business, but also fulfilled. And mm -hmm. it's the idea to just ask yourself and start with those basic questions. Right. What do you want to do? Right. And you're not going to know how to do it. Nobody who got there knew how to do it. They just, they just kept asking and, then, and they took a step. They took action. Then they took action again and then they failed and because that's a part of it. And you go better and better and you, you keep going. But eventually you get to the place that inspires you. But if you don't ask that initial question, there is no opportunity for you to achieve that. And, and it's going to be up to you how you feel about navigating your life that way. Is that mm. the way that you want to do it? That's your opportunity and you can do that. And you can also do this way. There is nothing preventing you and there's nothing holding you back from achieving that success or redefining your values and the way you live your life and what's most important to you. You can do that. That's, that's available to you also. So uh, you, you made a lot of great points. I would love for you, actually, I was going to ask a different question, but I would love for you to share a little bit about leadership uh, too, if you want to just touch on that a little bit, because leadership is so important and in organizations and the way that we conduct business, even leadership in the family. So uh, there's a lot of ways that we can apply uh, leadership principles. So maybe you can touch on that just a little bit. Sure. Um, so it's interesting because one of the questions the Burning Man organization is most often asked is for, for leadership advice. And, uh, and I think that one of the things we see emerging out of Burning Man culture is a whole different kind of model of leadership, right? I think that conventional notions of leadership do not do very well in Burning Man spaces and Burning Man culture, and that you see a whole different model of leadership emerging. And I don't think this has been adequately looked at. And I think this is, this is one of the things that I'm, I'm most proud of the, the, the book for offering. And to, to sort of summarize, I mean, what, what's the problem with the, the, the ordinary model of leadership, the conventional model of leadership? Well, who are the leaders? If, if you ask that question of most organizations, um, what you'll find is that there are two different kinds of people who are, who are leaders one of which is the funder, the person who's providing the money, you know, they're in charge, they make the decisions. And the other is the person who has the administrative power, right? They're, they're also the decision maker in the sense that they decide where resources are allocated and drop shift schedules and, you know, they control the bureaucracy, right? Those, those are the two things. Neither of those really work in Burning Man culture. The first one doesn't work because Burning Man culture is prides itself on having decommodified spaces. It's not that money is bad. It's not saying, oh, money, evil, none of that. I mean, obviously people spend a lot of money to prepare for Burning Man, but when you are in the space itself, you can't buy anything. Nothing is for sale. Money does not mediate how you interact with other people. This, this, is, this is so important. It's something that is really misunderstood about decommodification. Decommodification as a Burning Man principle isn't saying, oh, money, bad, terrible. I mean, maybe you think it is and you can have your opinion on that, sure. But what it means in practice in Burning Man is we do not mediate our interactions with one another through money or through what would be considered money substitutes, you know, status. Or I mean, you, you were talking earlier about how you meet these people at Burning Man and you have no idea who they are and, you know, and, or, you know, where they come from and they're different from the ordinary people you meet. That's what it's like when you don't use money and status as mediators for how we interact with one another. When you take those things off the table, you get a much more human encounter with one another. So, so 
saying I have the money, I provided the resources, therefore I'm the leader, that doesn't work. That's, that's the essence of commodification, right? That's, you know, so, so that isn't gonna work for Burning Man Spaces. In fact, you know, Burning Man Spaces is gifting spaces are very specifically that, no, you don't hoard resources over other people. You, 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 everyone tries to be as self-reliant as possible. And then if you wanna offer gifts, you offer gifts. But that's, you know, that's not, I have resources, so I'm in charge. So that is to be taken off the table. Then you have, well, I, have, I, control bureau, I control bureaucratic power, so I'm the leader. That's what happens. Again, not going to work for Burning Man culture because Burning Man culture is about finding your intrinsic motivation and doing your thing and about being self-reliant about it. So, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but a guy going, you know, well, I'm, I've, got, I've got a title, so I'm in charge. You have to do what I say. No, that's not going to work. I'm intrinsically motivated. I want to do my thing. You can do your thing. If you want to help with my thing, great. Maybe I'll help you with your thing. But... I don't belong to you, you know, you're, you're not gonna boss me around. I'm gonna, I'm trying to be helpful. That's different from, from being subordinate. So, so those two things don't work. Those, those just don't work. So what would work? I mean, people often try to say, well, what if you're a visionary? You know, you have the vision and you're, you know, you're, vis you're the visionary, so you're in charge. Eh, that also doesn't work because while sure, people have visions and people try to be helpful with it, again, applied existentialism, find your own vision. What do you want to do? What do you care about? And if you, what you really care about is this project that this other person is doing, well, great, you can do that. But you're not there because they're their leader. You're there because you want to help. You're there because of your passion as well. So this notion that, well, maybe it's the visionary who's the leader. No, no, not working. So, okay, so we, we have the situation where the conventional models of leadership don't apply at Burning Man. The, I mean, you know, you've, you've, you've been going for, for five times. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, well, I, that person's got the resources, so I got to do what they tell me, or, you know, that person, that person has a title, so I guess, no, I mean, you know, if, if you, if you decide you want to do that, okay, but they're, they're not in charge that way. So what, do, how, it's just not how it works out there. So how does it work? So, so I approach this, and I work with some other people in the organization. Um, we approach this by, by saying, okay, well, much in the same way that Larry establish the 10 principles by asking what's actually happening. You know, let's actually pay attention. What's going on? How does it work? Uh, we found that there are qualities that people who are volunteering for Burning Man, people who are, we didn't start with the leaders. We started with, we started with the people doing the work and duocracy, right? Start with the work. When the system is working, what experience are they having? What's actually going on? And we found that people who are volunteering at Burning Man, helping at Burning Man, have a series of qualities that they experience that every organization has, but that in most organizations, they're hoarded at the top, right? What am I talking about? I'm talking about relevance, the sense that the work you do is relevant. That's, let's be honest, most organizations, most people, most jobs, do you feel all that relevant? Do you, do you go in thinking I'm really important? This is, you know, what I do matters? No. And, uh, but, but if you're at the top, maybe you do. But most jobs, let's be honest, have, have a sense of utility involved with them. You're doing it because you have to. People who are volunteering at Burning Man feel relevant. Another is um, agency. They're making decisions that matter to them and they get to be able to do that. This involves not only what they're doing, and again, the whole idea is follow your own passion. So right there, you have agency. Are you passionate about this? Do you care? Great, then you should do it. If you don't, do what you were passionate about. 
but so people have agency. They're making decisions that are relevant to them and to themselves. Um, and they, get, they often get to do things that they do in ways that are relevant to them and themselves. Um, for example, you know, how do you want to dress? How do you want, how do you want to talk? What do you want to do? I mean, there, there are some things that we can't give people unlimited control over. Like, you know, if you're, if you're working the box office or, or the accounting and you're handling money, okay, you can't come up with your own mathematical system for this. But if you want to do it in a tutu, sure, do that. If you, you know, if, if you, you get to make all these kinds of choices about how you do the things that you decide to do. So that's, that's agency. Um, another is, um, is community, is competence. You, you get to do things to the extent that you are capable of doing them, which is actually kind of different from the way in which most jobs and agents and organizations work, right? If, if you go in and you see a process in most places and you say, I can do it better than this, I have a whole better approach. Most places are going to be like, yeah, no, sorry, you know, we're, we're, we're hiring you to do this specific thing. You do that, you do it the way we tell it to you. Burning Man is full of opportunities by which you can say, no, I can do this better. I have another way to do it. And you have those opportunities. You get to take it. You get to work to the level of your capacities on the work you are doing. Nobody's going to tell you, do it worse. Don't, don't try as hard as you want to try which is actually a thing that happens a lot in most organizations, right? We're actually held back a lot. So and there, there are a couple more, but the point is that you have these qualities and every organization has them. There's somebody in every organization that has access to these, but they're usually hoarded right at the top, right? They're usually hoarded for the people in the C-suites, the senior executives. They're the people who get to feel like they have relevance and they have agency and they, they can work at their capacities. They're, they're, they're the people who feel that they are connected and they are establishing social capital and that it's meaningful. That's, they're the ones who get it. Everybody else doesn't get access to these. At Burning Man, when we're doing it right, everybody feels like they have these qualities. Everybody has access to them. And what we think that means is that leadership in Burning Man is spreading these qualities around. The people who are leaders at Burning Man are the people who help other people feel relevant and help them access their agency and help them engage with their competence and all the other things, help them develop social capital, help them feel connected to the broader community. That's who leaders are. And that's not a zero-sum game. Everybody can be a leader if they are able to do that. You don't just because one person is a leader doesn't mean another person is a leader. And it has nothing to do with allocation of resources. It has nothing to do with, you know, who controls the levers of bureaucracy. The leaders are the people who help other people access these qualities and have these experiences. And if you are helping other people have these experiences, then you will be seen as a leader. That, in a nutshell, is the Burning Man leadership model, as I proposed it. That's amazing. I'm so glad I asked that. that that's really well put. It reminds me, I just read uh, Flow by Mihaly uh, Csikszentmihalyi. I'm probably pronouncing mm -hmm. that terribly. Uh, but it talks about the try. conditions. <laughs> it talks about the conditions for flow. And one of them is mm -hmm. to be challenged, right? So when, you're, yeah. when you want to be in flow, you can't be doing the thing that's super easy to you. You need to be challenged and, and right. be progressing that edge. And so everything that you shared there is really amazing because it also comes from experience. It isn't theory. Mm -hmm. Theory is all great. Philosophy is all great. But the fascinating thing about all of this stuff, it is philosophy from experience, which mm -hmm. is the highest form because it's an observation, not saying this is the way it should be it's like, or, mm -hmm. or could be. This is what's being experienced. These are the positives and these are the negatives. So uh, really amazing stuff. I wanted to ask, um, 
Do you want to address any of the, um, I know there's a lot of negativity about Burning Man. Uh, you know, some people say now it's just the billionaires yeah. game and you're going to hear more than I, you know, I just kind of shut that down after the second year. I was like, yeah, there's baloney. I'm aware of that. I know this. I, I'm, I'm, I have eyes. I know. Um, but my experience is not what you're saying. Like, I'm sure that is there. Right. That's not my personal experience. I don't, that's not what I'm experiencing, but I do know, mm -hmm. I do know what you're talking about. Do you want to address that in any way or do you want me to gloss over that? No, no, we can we can absolutely talk about it. I mean, you know, I'm 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 all about having these honest conversations and, and seeing where they go. Um, the most popular piece, I think, the most helpful thing I ever wrote about Burning Man was the piece "It's Okay to Be Miserable" about "It's Okay to Be Miserable at Burning Man." The most popular piece I ever wrote was a satirical history called "A Brief History of Who Ruined Burning Man," and the the idea of the piece, you can look it up online, is that you know every year somebody sometimes multiple somebody's ruined burning man you know it was it was it was the sound camps and the djs it was the uh, it was the, it was the tech executives it was the billionaires it was the celebrities and so over the period of i think at that point it was like 30 years or something like that over burning man's 30 year history it had been ruined 35 times by you know, <laughs> um and uh, and there's this there's this real sense of this and you're, you're right there's, there's 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 all this criticism and often just flat out negativity about it and and sometimes there are serious issues and a lot of the times it's overblown. And I think let's, let's just start with the ways in which it's overblown. Um, the fact that celebrities come to Burning Man, if you don't bump into them, you'd never know. They do not change your experience at all. It's, you know, they, I have no idea. So, somebody just suggested to me uh, at, at lunch this afternoon that the, some celebrity was at Burning Man this year. Well, I don't know. Maybe they were. I hope they had a good time. Uh, it doesn't change anything. Similarly, the, the presence of most elite 1% billionaire types doesn't actually really change anything. Um, it's, you know, there, there are some bad actors, and we'll get to that. We'll, we'll talk about that. But for the most part, the fact that there's a lot of money flowing through Black Rock City at this point, yeah, again, doesn't really change your experience. Or it actually contributes because a lot of them are creating giant gifts that they are offering to people in a decommodified way, which is exactly what you'd want to do. I mean, you know, that's, it, it just, if incredibly rich people are Burning Man, again, it doesn't really change the experience all that much. It, it doesn't have that much of an impact. That's seriously overblown. A lot of the reasons why people talk about this is because those are really easy, easy media hooks for people, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the internet loves, oh, celebrity so-and-so, photo of them at Burning Man. And then everybody goes, oh, what are they doing at Burning Man? Well, whatever. Uh, similarly, you know, we're, you know, oh, we get really mad at the rich for being at Burning Man. Well, you know, okay, that's an easy headline. But um, it, it, if you talk to people who are actually there, you know, most of the time it doesn't affect your experience at all. So those kinds of things are seriously overblown. Um, then there are some issues that, are more serious um, that I think are, are still problematic, but are, are they, they are problematic. I think they're still overblown, but they're, they are genuinely problematic. Um, let's take, let's take the notion of um, the increasing complexity and well, let's take the notion that Burning Man is, is getting more and more expensive, that it's, 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 it has to be a playground for the rich because it's so expensive. This is broadly a misunderstanding of how Burning Man actually works. Um, in the first place, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's expensive, but 
is it more expensive than anything else you'll be doing for a week? Um, I mean, tick, the, the face value of, of the average ticket is $450, you know, for, for, for a week. That's not so bad. That's not out of line, frankly, with most of the things you're doing. And in fact, I'd say is, is better than most. Um, is the travel expensive? Well, yes, but what are you going to do about that? Um, is the gear expensive? Yeah, yeah, it can be. On the other hand, if you're doing it multiple years, then you don't have to buy all that much year after year. But more importantly, it misunderstands the notion of Burning Man as a community effort. Because I mentioned when I was talking about leadership, social capital, right? That's a, that's a thing. Um, as opposed to fiscal capital. This is actually something I talk about a lot in the book. Um, <laughs> if you are going to Burning Man and you are not connecting to the community, then yeah, it's gonna be a lot more expensive. You're gonna buy everything yourself. You're gonna take care of all of the details yourself. You're gonna spend out all the money to go. Um, it's it's gonna be a lot of money. If on the other hand, you are a member of the Burning Man community where you live, suddenly there's ride shares and suddenly it's easier to find tickets and suddenly people are, going in together to put to send gear out there and suddenly they're sharing resources on playa and so all of a sudden these expenses go down significantly because you are a part of a community people who talk about the expense of burning man always overlook the fact that social capital counts for as much or more than fiscal capital when you are when you are going out there if you are an active member of the community then it's not nearly as difficult to do, let alone nearly as expensive to do. So that's, that's I mean, the, the, the price issue is a serious one, and I'm glad that Burning Man is doing more low price tickets to address that. But again, the, the tickets aren't really the expensive part. The expensive part is all the other stuff. I mean, you know, you're, you, you've been going five years, you know that. It's, it's all the other stuff. The more you are doing this with other people, the more those costs go down, the more convenient it is. So for people who are engaged in the community, that is less of a problem. And that is something that really needs to be remembered when we, when we talk about that particular kind of issue. Um, and then you have an issue where, yeah, you have some genuine bad actors out there. I mean, let's, let's not pretend that people are, are perfect. Um, you have some people who really do just go out there to be absolute assholes. And that needs to be addressed. The Burning Man Project, I think, has been getting better at addressing them, but it's it's an ongoing effort. Um, and I think that I think that the placement team is taking that a lot more seriously now. I think that uh, they're they're looking very seriously at all right. How are these people coming in? What can we do to make their trip in less convenient and therefore make the whole thing less appealing to them? Um, yeah, no, that's that that's an issue, but I don't see it as an existential threat. This notion that you know the fact that there are some assholes, sometimes rich assholes at Burning Man, they're tearing the whole thing down. Oh, come on. That's, uh, that's you know, we're, we're, we're talking about a global community uh, here um, and a central event of almost 80,000 people. That's, you know, that, that, that is again, an, an overblown threat. Um, the question of whether or not they get more and more influence, that's, that's also a serious one. And, you know, we, we're watching the organization, we're watching the Burning Man Project to make sure that they stay they stay true to form, that people, it's, it's ultimately a commodification question. Can people buy influence? And absolutely, we need to stay on top of the organization and make sure that that does not happen. I mean, I can tell you that there are some very 
very committed people in this building to making sure that that does not happen. Nevertheless, money is, you know, money is a, uh, is, is slippery. And so, yeah, we have, we have to be vigilant about that. But, um, but again, that is a, that is a manageable problem. Um, as long, as long as we are honest, then, then we're okay. Well, I appreciate you sharing all that. And it's interesting because a lot of the time when I'm traveling or I'll talk about Burning Man, uh, people who haven't experienced it, they immediately go to the negative. They go to kind of one of those three headlines that you shared. And overall, I would say that that's the minority. You know, that is just going to be the the little bit apart. And, and it, like you said, it's a lot more overblown than, you know, people make it out to be. But for whatever reason, people want to address that. And kind of disregard the 95% of all of the magic and, and what it is and allowing that space for anybody to come and, and to express themselves and all the amazing points and all the great that it does and um, and is. I am personally super stoked on Birdie Man and I've seen so many uh, powerful, powerful experiences and heard, you know, story after story after story of just people having huge breakthroughs there and in their life. And whether it was like, you, you know, you, you go to therapy to heal trauma. A lot of time when people will hear the trauma just through engaging with the community, they'll rethink about the way that they operate. They'll change their perspective on how they deal with everyday life outside of there. They'll make lifelong friends that are actually supportive. There's so much magic and goodness about Burning Man. And I think that that is the majority. Just like anything else, if you're going to bring 70,000 people together, there is going to be some crap. And you can focus on it all day if you wish. And that's up to you. Um, so I, I appreciate you addressing that. Um, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, but I definitely wanted to ask you um, one kind of thought thought experiment question. Um, where do you see the the possibility of Burning Man Let's say you, you can change the timeline if you want 10, 20 years, if you want to get crazy and give me a hundred years, but where do you see the possibility of what Burning Man could be inside Black Rock City, but also the influence outside Black Rock City? If you could, you know, again, you don't have to be a blueprint, but just kind of like steer it in a way where you're like, this could be the highest vision of what could be possible. Right. Now the, the highest vision of what could be possible for Burning Man is absolutely outside of Black Rock City. Black Rock City is amazing, it's incredible, but it is no longer where Burning Man has to happen. Um, I think that, I, in fact, let me, let me go further and say that whether or, Burning Man has earned a place in history now. I mean, it's been, in, there's been an exhibit in the Smithsonian, you know, there, there are exhibits in, in museums, you know, around, around America. I mean, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an international media, it's earned a, a place in history. But whether history will remember it as a boutique arts movement or a major social movement is still open to question. We don't know that yet. That depends on us. That depends on what we do. And that question will not be settled in Black Rock City. That question will be settled out in the world. If Burning Man has a significant influence on the world, it's a major social movement. If Burning Man basically retains its influence in Black Rock City, it's a boutique arts movement. And so that, that question is open. That has to be decided. What is Burning Man's highest future in this sense? Honestly, it's to become obsolete. It's for the ideas of Burning Man, it's for the philosophy of Burning Man, it's for the culture of Burning Man to so permeate the world that people don't need to do Burning Man anymore because they're doing it themselves. Um, the 10 principles are not copyrighted. You don't, you, don't have to, you, you don't have to become a Burning Man affiliate to have radical self-expression or immediacy or radical inclusion. 
one of the things I talk about in my book is that Burning Man isn't that I, I talked much earlier in, in our conversation about one of the things that separates Burning Man out from, you know, music festivals and things and that part of it's that it has a philosophy, but there's something even more, even more basic, which is that the message of a music festival like Coachella or Woodstock is you had to be there to experience it. The message of Burning Man culture is I can do this myself. The more people do it themselves, the better the world is going to become. The more like Burning Man the world is going to become. And what that means is you create a space. There's no, there's no intrinsic magic to going out to the desert and creating Black Rock City. You create a space. You take it outside of commerce. You let people interact with one another in creative ways, find their intrinsic motivations. You ask, how can I help? You don't mediate your interactions to the extent possible with money and status. You create art. The more people do that, the more people learn to create spaces like that and grow spaces like that where they live, the more they don't need Burning Man. In the ideal world, Burning Man as a movement makes Burning Man as an organization obsolete. It makes Burning Man as a thing that people do as a name recognition thing obsolete because it's just the way the world works. That's the highest good of Burning Man. That's the, the ideal future of Burning Man. That's, that's what I'm working towards. Amazing. Beautiful, beautiful answer. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing in your book and you know everything that you're doing. I want to ask you before we sh uh, close it down, is there anything that you wish that I had asked or anything else that you want to address? Um, no, I've been, uh, I've really enjoyed this. I think that the, I think that the, the most, I think the most important thing that people need to remember is to, to keep it fun. We, we've talked about a lot of, a lot of heady things here. We, we've talked about philosophical things, but find your passion in all this. That's, that's the crucial thing. And if, if this is not your passion, that's okay. Nobody has to do Burning Man, but we'd like to help. Um, but but it, it should be fun. You should be laughing. If you're, if you're not laughing uh, in, in a way that connects you to other people, something's probably going wrong. We, we, we might be able to help with that. But uh, that, that, that's what I would say is uh, it, should be, it should be personal. It should be fun. It should be engaging. And uh, everything else can work itself out. Beautiful. Very, very well said. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I always enjoy talking about Burning Man and the experiences we could do. Probably 20 episodes on just, you know, my, one of my beautiful experiences and one of your beautiful experiences or whatever we're, we're going to do. And I like the last uh, bit about having fun and, and, you know, there's a lot of hard work that goes there, the, the storms and, and the heat, and it's just freaking terrible in so many different ways. Um, but you're usually wearing something ridiculous and somebody else's and, and you're doing hard work, but you're, you're bringing it with a light perspective and you're doing it for other people. And that gives a lot of purpose. It gives a lot of meaning and it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's a very, amazing experience so thank you for for the book and i invite people to check out uh your website your book where can people find more about you in the book and pick it up and 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 dive deep the the the, the book is available anywhere um the scene that became cities uh or for the author caveat magister um i love it when people get it through local bookstores that's fantastic but it's also available at at amazon or, or major retailers um i uh, i'm on burning man's journal 
frequently. I publish there a lot. That's journal.burningman.org. Or again, just look up Caveat Magister online. Um, if, uh, if you want to uh, get on the equivalent of my email list, I have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com. That's Benjamin Wax, Benjamin W-A-C-H-S, W-A-C-H-S. All my, all my work goes there, including a lot of things that have nothing to do with Burning Man. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's where I am on the internet. Awesome. Cool. Well, everybody check out the book, support Benjamin, support Caveat. Uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, just sharing everything you did today. Appreciate oh, this it. This has been great. Thank you. Awesome. See you guys. See you in the next one. Peace.